0: Here we go. We're going to talk about small towns today, which is a good thing to talk about in Connecticut. There are 169 towns in Connecticut and a relatively small. we're about the size physically, I think, of, of Puerto Rico? Puerto Rico has 78 towns. Um, before uh, we begin, I'm going to just tell a quick story. It was, it was kind of excited in my mind or brought back to my mind <clears throat> by... Uh, the, one of the books that we looked at to get ready for the, uh, today's show, we read Gary Greenberg's book, and he's in the studio right now, Scotland, about the town of Scotland, Connecticut. Some of the things in Gary's book brought to mind a story that a fellow journalist told me. He was in, uh, I guess, in 1973, uh, staying uh, for a protracted period of time in a very small town in Alabama. Uh, and he was uh, renting a duplex, and his landlady lived next door. She was a a widow who lived next door and kind of doted on him, you know, having this young man there, and so she's bringing him food and all this kind of stuff. And on one occasion, she was talking to him, and she said something that was um, uh, overtly and disturbingly anti-Semitic. And he said, Mrs. Smith, um, I feel like I should tell you that I'm Jewish. Uh, And she clammed up, didn't say another word, withdrew herself from the apartment, walked out without saying another word, went back to her duplex. And he sort of wondered where things stood. And a day or two went by with no exchange between the two of them. And right around that time, the Yom Kippur War broke out. And he was walking up the path to his, up the sidewalk to his apartment. And he could see that in her apartment, she was watching television. She had the news on. She had the news of the Yom Kippur War. And without looking up or looking away from her TV set, She she just yelled through the screen window. I hope them Jews whoop them Arabs, Um, which I think kind of, you know, gets that sort of some of the weird paradoxes of small town life, which is you are perhaps likely to encounter people who are, let's say, less cosmopolitan than you are and maybe less. Uh, Maybe more inclined to think that it's okay, that casual bigotry, to use one of Gary's uh, terms in his book, uh, is, uh, is okay under certain circumstances if you know who you're talking to. But you also encounter the same people wanting to be maybe a little bit better, a little bit warmer, a little bit more attuned to the particulars of who you are once they realize that you're kind of part of their landscape. So it's one of the things we'll be talking about today. I won't tell any more stories. I'll introduce the guests. As I said, Gary Greenberg is here in studio with me. He's a practicing psychotherapist in Connecticut, the author of several books, including Scotland, uh, which is a uh, short book, a Kindle single. Is it a Kindle single? Is that it what it, is? it was, was a Kindle, Kindle single. single. Once Upon a Time it was a Kindle sing- single. Is It is uh, a story about his years as chairman of the zoning board uh, of the town of Scotland and Connecticut. You're still the chairman of the board, I right? I am still. Yeah. I looked you up today on the website to make sure. Also joining us uh, by phone is Karen Macker, uh, associate professor of art and architecture at Hobart and William Smith Colleges, She's working on two books, including the Myths of Main Street. Uh, she has a website uh, about that as well. Um, so, um, so Gary, I guess I'm going to begin with you, and and I mean, your book in some ways is like a much more textured version of that story, in a way, right? It's kind of about the way when you, you I think you say at one point in the book that you moved to a small town to escape the fragmentation and alienation uh, of city life, and and although. There's a directness about contact in a small town. That doesn't mean you. there's really no way to escape from fragmentation and alienation, right? That's sort of part of being alive.
1: I think that's right. And I think if I said that in the book, uh, I was probably stretching the truth um, because really the impulse to a small town was much less articulate than that. It was just that it felt right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I never lived, I've never lived in a city. And it turns out that my, my ancestors all lived on shtetls, so mm-hmm. a small town may be in my blood.
0: Um and and um I, we should say one thing about Scotland which is um So being of a certain age and having been a journalist for my entire life, when you say Scotland, Connecticut to me, the first thing that pops into my head is the Ku Klux Klan because long, long ago, but very early in my journalism career, the Klan had a rally in Scotland, Connecticut. And when I first heard about your book, and I felt a little bit bad that that was this lingering image that I had in my head. But according to your book, it's like still something people talk about in Scotland too. Oh, for
1: sure. It was was a watershed event um, and still... Because so many of the original characters or their descendants are still there, uh, it will probably
0: remain that way for generations. Um, well, I want to get you to tell a little bit more of the story in this book, but I want to bring Karen into the conversation, too. So, Karen, I, you know, I, I said before we went on the air that— I think most people, particularly here in Connecticut, if you're driving out of the country, you drive through a town like Gary's, uh, you drive through a town that has a beautiful town green and maybe a steepled congregational church and, and some little idiosyncratic looking businesses that aren't chain stores and, uh, you know, and, and you think, wow, that's, this is great. This is sort of my dream. I, I want to live here. I, I, just, I, I have a hard time believing there isn't, that there is anybody who hasn't at least momentarily toyed with that idea that their life would be better and purer and more con- connected to their fellow human beings mm-hmm. if they moved to a beautiful little small town. Where do we get that idea from? It seems as though this is maybe not an idea that's always been in the American mind. I think you, you, you put the origins of it maybe between 1870 and 1930.
2: I do. I, I, I mean, I think there are a myriad of answers to that question, but mm-hmm. I, one of the things that I um, have become very curious about as a way of kind of trying to pick apart the mythology of the small town and the kind of ideals we associated with it was to go to its period of development. Uh, which was when America was booming, um, roughly between 1870. Sort of, be- it's like bookended between the Civil War and the Great Depression. It's when um, the United States was rapidly expanding in terms of its kind of capitalist infrastructure and its economy, in terms of westward expansion, and in terms of um, urbanization. And it was, uh, it was, it was, it was a time of great growth. So. Small towns were, were kind of rising up out of the dirt and old towns were rev- revolving and um, uh, sprucing themselves up and, and redeveloping. So It was just a, a period of amazing development in the U.S., largely because of population increases, but also because of westward expansion in the economy.
0: And so one of the things that you document is and, – and I don't know whether it might be more true – For towns as you move further west, I mean, I feel like here in New England, some of these small towns, Mm -hmm. they they kind of got their their look, you know, pretty early on in the process. But as you move west, there are these towns where the thing that we think about, the thing that we exalt about a small town is is it's idiosyncrasy and and the way that it kind of looks different from what we imagine a highly corporatized and mass produced America would look right. like um but one of the things that you've documented is starting sometime during that 1870 to 1930 period you could essentially order that look from a from a manufacturer
2: yes exactly so this was the period um in which the metal storefront industry took off it sort of burst around the 1870s and then just rapidly expanded. And what that meant was that there were a number of companies around the country associated with foundries that were mass producing prefabricated elements of storefronts that you would pick out of a catalog and order to wherever it is you were building. And so as long as you were on a rail line, and the expansion of the rail lines also made this possible, then you could both get catalogs and you could get Building materials that you couldn't get in any other way, and so you know there are the same. Like a, there's a wonderful story about um, a particular um, couple of companies owned by uh, this family, the Mesker brothers, and they um, put out over 50,000 fronts around the country. They shipped in to every state. They shipped to Bermuda. They shipped to Alaska. Uh, so you could find the same storefront in Alaska that you'd find in Massachusetts. Despite some of those um, maybe more geographically linked um, vernacular uh, things about the town center and the town green, Like we do see some shifts in how plans were laid out for towns uh, over the history of the development. But the building materials, actually, you can see throughout the United States.
0: All right. So, uh, you know, Gary, one of the th- attractions of Scotland... Scotland, uh, there's, there's no more rail lines to speak of around here that are worth uh, talking about in terms of being able to deliver fake storefronts. And Scotland's also pretty far from a highway. You point this out in the book that, like, I mean, it's almost impossible these days to have a small Connecticut town into which Dunkin' Donuts has not um, sunk its sprinkle-covered claws. Uh, but at least as of the writing of that book, it hadn't happened there yet, right? Yeah, and it still hasn't. And it's
1: the bet noir of most of the people who live in Scotland. There are a few who say, well, what's the big deal? But most of the people you talk to, that's sort of the definition of the worst thing that could happen. Because uh, what Karen was just talking about that mass produced authenticity. Mm -hmm. Uh, You could build a Dunkin Donuts that looks like a New England building, um, but it still reeks of that uh, homogenization. And whether it's articulated or not, people have a at least people in my town often have a visceral
0: reaction to that,
1: which is where the zoning board is supposed to protect them, which is what the zoning board is supposed to protect them from, or at least that's how they look at it.
0: Right. Well, so let's talk a little bit about that too. So, I mean, probably everybody in Scotland, yeah, I mean, m- maybe Dunkin' Donuts is, you know, 70% of the people's bet Noir. but everybody probably has some idea of what the beginning of the end would look like for Scotland. And it could be all kinds of different things. And as you kind of, I think, hint at a little bit in your book and maybe even come out and say, maybe having a Jewish psychotherapist move to town and become chairman of the zoning board might violate the idea of some people of like what Scotland is. Well,
1: I think that the introduction of that element was probably a little difficult. But the real difficulty was the introduction of uh, a group home uh, that had uh, two of its three residents were sex offenders. And that, I think, uh, was violated people's sense of what the town was supposed to be sufficiently that they did not keep their objections to themselves or grumbling about them with each other. They decided to go public with their uh, d- with. With how it disturbed them.
0: Although that part of your book, it seems to me, I mean, that aspect of your book, it could be written about a neighborhood in West Hartford too, right? I mean, in in a way, the fact that people have problems with, and these are um, intellectually uh, challenged people uh, who have uh, who are on a list of sex offenders, they're going to be living in some kind of group home, um, that could upset people in a fairly in a much bigger place that had a small neighborhood. The difference is, I think, what happens. The way that it plays out and the way that it plays out for you in this book as the the head of the zoning board and thus the person who becomes kind of the focus. Uh, of town resentments about how this is being handled, right? It's In that way, it's a much more intensely focused kind of question.
1: Yeah. And and I'm sure that that's true, that there are many similarities with any neighborhood argument. But one of the differences between a neighborhood and a town is that the town is a political entity, right? So people have an expectation, not only that at some cultural level, they'll have control, but at a political level, they'll have control. So when it turns out... That the the town that they thought you know, was was, was, under, was in their control isn't. That creates an additional layer of disturbance that I think fired I think that may have been really what made the thing catch fire. and And, and of course, that also creates the mechanism by which they can seek redress and and seek a, a solution to the problem that they perceived.
0: You know, Karen Macker, I think one of the things that drew people to cities a a little bit was that sort of the opposite of this, right? That you can kind of get lost in a city. You can know some people, and not know other people. There seems to be a way in which in a small town, and I know you live in one too, um, that in a small town, ultimately, there's the attraction of that initial intimacy of scale. But intimacy of scale also means essentially you. There's only one drugstore you can go to, you know. I mean, you can't really get away from people in a small town.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that—I mean, I think the the history of the mythology of small-town America is that it's always been a little bit double-sided because, yeah, you can't be anonymous in a small town, and that can mean that— that insularity can backfire and mean that people become very narrow-minded. I mean, I think, uh, you know, Sinclair Lewis's Main Street is all about, you know, a town that is disappointing to this woman that really wants to um, do a lot of civic engagement and improvement in the town, and nobody's interested.
0: Right, and Gary, I mean, the other part of this is, and I don't want to give away, like, how your book ends or anything like that, but but I might sort of you know, get close to doing that, is that so there's sort of um, a progression that I think most of us can kind of think about a little bit. And, and actually, I think Garrison Keillor is somebody who does a pretty good job with this, which is, first of all, you have the nostalgia for the small town and the notion that there's something kind of adorable about small towns in a way that suburban suburbia can never be adorable and in a way that urban life just can't be adorable either, it can be other things. And then you have this kind of realization that, well, no, a small town is full of human beings. Human beings are problematic and fractious and all kinds of other things. And things can kind of take a, a negative turn pretty quickly. And, but maybe the third progression here, and it's kind of, I think, the thing that Keeler does pretty well, is on the other hand, you could learn to love those people. You could find some way. In a city, you could just decide never to speak to the person who flipped you off three minutes ago. It won't make any difference. And really in a suburb, you can kind of do that too. There is a way in which the confinement of a small town might force you to somehow or other deal with and get past some things that were bothering you about each other.
1: Yeah, you, you have no choice because you're going to run into each other all the time. And, uh, and so you have to find your way through that. I suppose you do have a choice. You could just have permanent enmity, but that's not how... Uh, that's not what I've observed, and I don't mind giving away the end of the story to the extent that's to, uh, of saying that despite the fact that half the town or some large percentage of the town turned out to a meeting where they spent three hours hating on me, uh, I have cordial relations with almost all of those people uh, just a couple of years later. And that's not because anybody's made any huge efforts. It's because we all recognize that we have to live together.
0: Right. There's there's a I think an especially touching part of the book where you pay a visit to the guy who basically had your job before you did and who you kind of led a similar I wouldn't say witch hunt. That's not right. But you, you kind of were in there with the pitchforks and the torches kind of taking this guy out. And now you're basically living through your own personal version of what he went through. And you guys meet and kind of reconcile a little bit over that, too.
1: Yeah, that was that was I just I was so traumatized after that episode The only thing—it was one of the only things that I could think of that might make me feel better—and I I couldn't even figure out why. But I knew I had to go there, so I went and visited with the fellow that I had deposed in a a less ugly but still bracing manner, and uh, he uh, and I had a rapprochement, Um, and it it was—it was—you say it's touching. I supposed to read it was touching to live through, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, because because it made the whole thing feel like somehow
0: it could be resolved. Right. You even touched him, which is hard for Connecticut guys to do. Um, all right. So, you know, um, Kieran Macker, I'm thinking about where we inherit a lot of our ideas about small town life from, where where we get those pictures from. We're going to talk a lot about this in the final segment of the show, which I've already recorded with a uh, professor of English and American Studies. But, uh, and he mentions Norman Rockwell. But, uh, Kieran, I want you to talk a little bit more about Rockwell. Obviously Stockbridge is just to the north of, of where I'm sitting. Um, <clears throat> Rockwell gives us this kind of sense of of a small town. It's where America happens, right? It's where the, the lunch counter stools are that the cop and the little kids sit on next to each other. It's where that 4th of July parade takes place. It doesn't take place in a suburb full of, you know, houses built in the 1950s, and it doesn't take place in a city. It takes place in this small town, but you say that Rockwell's small town in some way was mythologized before he even inherited it
2: yeah, yeah what's interesting about where um, well i think I think what's interesting about Stockbridge, which is where Rockwell spent the last twenty five years of his life painted a number of very iconic images like the cop with the kid in the diner and the marriage proposal and some other, the the one with the doctor and the little kid pulling up his pants, you know, these kinds of very innocent images where people have a kind of, um, there's an innocence, like kids are all really light, lovely, delightful kids. There's no punks throwing rocks <laughs> at windows and, you know, everything is working out beautifully. He's telling those stories. Um, based on, and he used people from the town, you know, as models. He would sort of set up these elaborate kind of narratives visually and then paint them. And he's setting those uh, in Stockbridge. Stockbridge is his setting for that. But Stockbridge has a long history of self-identifying as a place that is um, idyllic and wanted to appeal to visitors and be one of the most beautiful villages in New England. They had identified that as... Um, Stockbridge's really uh, purpose, in some ways, post-early farming identity, um, starting in the 1860s. And so, you know, a hundred years later, Norman Rockwell moves to this town, and this is a town that went through decades and decades of improvement so you know they they put in elm trees before a lot of other towns had put in elm trees they put in greens they put in walks and sidewalks they put in granite crossings and fountains and little statuary um, they established rules for you know where um, Where weeding needed to be happening, and where you could have, um, you had to have flower beds, and they spruced up the train station. All these types of things led to a kind of preciousness about Stockbridge that anticipated Rockwell landing there. And the thing about Rockwell is that he had always, this is the last 25 years of his life, so he's already in his 50s when he moves to Stockbridge. He had been painting for decades, but all of his paintings starting in the 1930s was always nostalgic. So he was always painting the past, even though he was painting in a present time, right? So in the 60s, he's painting things that look kind of like the 50s, and in the in the fifties he's painting things to look a little bit like the forties that he ends up in Stockbridge a, a town that kind of was stuck in time is, is I don't think coincidental um, and that it ended up being where the Norman Rockwell Museum is is also not coincidental because he painted one side of Main Street in Stockbridge it was the only kind of um, really detailed painting of of a whole street that he ever did and that is, is now in the museum in Stockbridge, and nothing has changed. You All know, right. No, and nothing's going to change.
0: So we're going to grab a quick break here. Um, we, um, we're going to be a little bit pressed for time in the second segment with um, Gary and Kieran, but let's take a break. We'll be back. We're back. We're talking about small towns, the romance and allure of small towns, and whatever you might call the underside uh, of those qualities as well. Uh, Joining us uh, here in studio with me is Gary Greenberg, Uh, been a guest with us many times before, practicing psychotherapist in Connecticut, author of several books, including Scotland, a story about his years as chairman of the zoning board in that very small Connecticut town of Scotland. Uh, Kieran Macker is with us, associate professor of art and architecture um, at Hobart and William Smith Colleges. She's working on a book called The Myths of Main Street uh, has a, a website uh, about that as well. So, um, so Gary, Scotland uh, uh, is also maybe a good symbol of just the struggle of small towns to exist. And I can't say that I'm totally up to date on, on what the plans are for Scotland, but I keep hearing, like, is Scotland going to be disincorporated or what's going on there? Well, the, the problem is that home rule is, a, speaking of
1: nostalgia, it's a very expensive kind of, uh, it's almost a luxury at this point. And so between the budget crisis in Connecticut and the expense of the unusually expensive high school in Scotland, it's a regional school, it's unusually expensive, there uh, is a huge tax burden on the, on the town. And so one of the ideas that our first selectman floated was the possibility of essentially selling ourselves to uh, a neighboring town. I'm not sure that there was much more to that than just an expression of the desperation that we've been feeling um, because of our limited resources. But, you know, it turns out that you can be nostalgic for something that you never had. In fact, maybe that's a, a working definition of nostalgia is a hankering, a yearning for something that you never had. And so the power of the idea that we can have this little place and it'll last forever uh, is, is very strong.
0: Well, and Kieran, that's very much um part of, I think, your understanding of the way that small towns have worked. You could sort of ask the question, what's a small town for? What has a small town been for? You know, at a time of a purely agrarian America, a small town really kind of maybe made sense as the place where everybody congregated for church and to go to market and stuff like that. But America has changed and what goes on in any kind of municipality has changed over the years. And and so I assume small towns have had have struggled to catch up with this. I mean, they're not as as commercially diverse as other places
2: right yeah i think i think the 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 truth is is that small towns have always struggled i think that anything that is um uh denser uh and more diverse is going to be more nimble uh to market shifts and is going to be more efficient about um and so in, in some ways more sustainable um which is why the kind of uh, densification just starts to, like, as people are moving rural to to urban migration, all of the urbanization that was happening in the United States in the late 19th century uh, was not necessarily all to big cities. A lot of it was, you know, to small towns. So, like, it, it, there are these st- sort of staggering figures about, um, I think it was, like, what, one in five people in the early part of the 19th century lived in a town of 2,500 persons or more, but by the end of the 19th century, it was um, three out of five lived mm-hmm. in. You know, so it was, it, it was sort of amazing how different, um, how different life was suddenly with the urbanization of America, and I think that it was always going to be a model that was going to struggle but sometimes struggle, sometimes don't struggle. And it, it has to do with, you know, the kind of shifts in market. Any, any larger city is always going to be a little bit more nimble about that. I think one of the things that, that towns, um, they have a kind of longevity of memory because they aren't changing as quickly. And so, uh, like Gary said, you know, for generations, people are going to remember this, this connection to the KKK you know, the memory, the collective memory, community memory, um, all of that I think lends itself to making the small town kind of ripe for nostalgia in some ways because things are not changing as quickly.
0: Right. Um, We've got uh, this is going to go right up uh, Gary's alley because it's mentioned. Oops, I've got to put that uh, call on the other side. Sorry about that. Um, We've got Abram in uh, New London. Hi, you're on the air.
3: Hi, Colin. panel. Uh, I've been asked to write a uh, contribution to a, a volume on political philosophy that that's um looking at short stories and the story i chose is Shirley Jackson's the lottery which is uh that's i don't think i'll be spoiling for anybody when i say is about horror in a small town when through this lottery uh, a random member is stoned i wondered if um, members of the panel wanted to say something about the effect of that uh essay in its appearance uh, almost 50 years ago.
0: Well, I wonder if it's so much the effect, the effect of the essay or the short story as it is the way it might mirror certain realities of a small town.
1: Yeah, I, I found that in the experience that I've, I've had, that I had in, in Scotland, that uh, the Shirley Jackson story was really apt and I understood it in a new way because what I understood was, I'm sure she meant this all along, I just was too dense to get it, that the, the lottery was what held the town together. Because it created an, another. It created somebody for the town to unite against, arbitrarily in the case of the story, of course, which is the real cruelty of it. But I think that that part of it, that gets at the uh, underside of all of this delightful nostalgia and I- the idyllic nature of it, that uh, the town is like a... It, it is an entity that is defined by, against, uh, against others and th- requires, in a way uh outsiders to exist or it require it, it's necessary for it to create outsiders which is what happened uh, in the story that I tell in the book.
0: So, Christian, um, before we run out of time here, um, uh, in the 90s, uh, I sort of stumbled onto a place called Mashpee Commons, uh, uh, and sort of like on the on the front end of Cape Cod. Uh, and already they had done this thing, where they had, they had done the thing that you talked about from, say, the 1890s, except they'd done it in the 1980s. They had effectively built a fake small town. It was really a shopping center, but it looked like a Cape Cod small town. They'd done everything they possibly could streetlights and, and, and architecture to do that. And and I, I just getting ready for the show, I kind of checked back in with Mashpee Commons and they're still expanding it and they're having conversations. Boy, should there be some more green space in here? Is there a way that we could even incorporate kind of some residential stuff? I mean, in a way, it's like an, an attempt to intentionally build something uh, that looks like a small town where there isn't a small town. I don't know. How does that typically work, Kristen? Is that do people sort of see through that, or can that really kind of take the place of what we want from a small town?
2: Are you th- you're talking to me, Kieran? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Kieran. Yeah. 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 Um, I. I th- I think, well, you know, the sort of neo-traditional, Mashpee Commons is something that came out of neo-traditional planning, and this started maybe in the 80s, right? Um, and now this planning is, I would say, it was, it was presented almost as an alternative to um, kind of mid-century, mid-20th century suburbia. So as an alternative, I think it had mass appeal because it was nostalgic. It harkened back to a different kind of, um, landscape and one that was, uh, familiar. But I think that the, the things that, that are positive about, um, this type of development are you know that it's uh, that it tries to put the car the it's pedestrian oriented mm-hmm. there are things about intimacy and um, the scale of design there are wonderful things about neo traditional planning I think there's just always a risk when it's a it's an obvious um, and and literal hearkening back to an image of a place in our minds um, that cannot possibly be a reality. Because as I've said, it's, you know, if you go back to the history of the development of Main Street, it's a very patchy, difficult, struggling process um, with, a, with a lot of big business, a lot of um, mythologies that are kind of busted up and, and they break down. And so our understanding of the small town as a model for development it's is really limited. We're just sort of accepting it at face value without really thinking through all of, the, all of the problems that used to happen in small towns, as well as the complexity of the small town.
0: All right. Uh, I'm going to have to stop it there, although there's, I've got a lot more questions for Gary and a lot more questions for you, too. Uh, Kieran Macker, Associate Professor of Art and Architecture at Hobart and William & Smith Colleges, look for her book, um, the upcoming The Myths of Main Street. Uh, Gary Greenberg, his book, his most recent book is, uh, is it your most recent book? It is. Uh, is Scotland, a story about his uh, controversy that, in which he was embroiled as chairman of the zoning board in the small Connecticut town of Scotland. All right. So we, we're going to take a little break here. We're going to um, have one more conversation 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 uh, about how the small town is depicted in culture and historical understanding. You're going to hear a little bit more talk, I think, about the lottery. Uh, Again, you can't talk about small towns without going Shirley Jackson. Lots of other stuff to talk about as well.
3: Here goes good old Wally Clifford, the town auto mechanic,
2: heading over toward the grain elevator. You have to get really close to Wally to see he's a Disney robot, and if you do get really close, it sometimes activates his weaponized laser beam eyes.
3: Today's show is produced by good old Betsy Kaplan from Betsy's Boutique and Rent a Tractor, and me, Kyone Wolf, our intern is Sarah Bly, the only member of the town basketball team. Amanda Fish runs the bait and tackle shop, and the part of Bill Curry is played by Father Emil. And now back to Colin.
0: As part of our conversation today, we, we want to talk about how small towns exist in the American mind, which is not always perfectly mapped onto the American reality. Uh, here to help us do that is a Professor Miles Orvell, a professor of English and American Studies uh, at Temple University and the author of several books, including The Death and Life of Main Street, Small Towns in American Memory, Space, and Community. So... Let's begin by saying this, and you can either disagree with me or amplify uh, on my comments. It it seems to me that culturally we have kind of a love-hate relationship with small towns, right? that in some ways they are the places in which cherished and maybe even over-romanticized ideas about the American past and and what the American heartland or heart is, uh, it's all kind of wrapped into the idea of the American small town, but also all of our fears about isolation and narrow-mindedness and repression are also kind of wrapped into that idea of the small town. So, I don't know, help me unpack that idea a little bit.
3: Well, I think you have it exactly right. Uh, The small town has this sort of double valence, you might say, in terms of how we think about it and how we imagine it. And it's something that I understand in terms of the Well, you could say the evolution of it culturally and historically. So I would take this back to the 19th century, really, to begin to understand it. In the 19th century, this small town was simply the most commonly lived-in space for Americans. And, you know, it was where people lived, and it sustained, you know, the community. And it functioned quite well, even sustaining the advent of the railroad. And that remained the case through the end of the 19th century and into the early 20th century, you could say. And then things begin to break apart, and that's when the emotional meaning of the small town begins to change, you might say.
0: Well, I mean, some of it might be based on alternative, too. What are your alternatives? So, in, in like, it, when you think about Hawthorne writing in the 19th century, you know, he's often writing about people to whom, the, for whom the alternative of the small town might be the wilderness, um, or, or at least the woods, where you go and you meet bad people and get into trouble. So the small town is maybe, you know, it, it's all this Forces of society collected into one fairly small place. Whereas in the 20th century, people have an alternative to the small town that's not the wilderness, right? It's the city. It's the place that's either more cosmopolitan or more corrosive, depending on your view of a city.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. So, in fact, with the growth of cities at the end of the 19th century and going into the 20th century, the magnet of the city begins to draw people away from the small town for two reasons. One, things are much more exciting in the city, so young people want to go there to make their fortunes and their reputations. And for another, simply economically the small towns are beginning to suffer real challenges from competition with the city. You know, and this becomes really uh, magnified with the, with the use of the automobile, when people can get out of the town and they leave the merchants of the town and these towns begin to suffer economic consequences. So for these reasons the city becomes a great magnet in the early twentieth century. And and so who's left in the small town? Well, the people who tend to be left are the older generations. They tend to be more conservative. And the small town in the early twentieth century then begins to seem to be a place of repression, a place where you need to get away from conservative thought. And the repression of puritanical thinking. And this pervades the literature of the teens and 1920s.
0: So we're talking about Sinclair Lewis, we're talking about Sherwood Anderson. So, I mean, Winesburg, Ohio becomes a real epitome of that notion of the small town where grudges don't go away, where your secret is closely guarded but also able to be penetrated. You can disappear into a city. You can't disappear into a small town. Even if you don't talk to anybody, people see you walking back and forth with a tormented look on your face.
3: Exactly. So people become grotesque, they become twisted, they grow into themselves. Uh, the small town becomes the incubator of psychological deformities and uh, repressions. But all of that begins to change radically in the 1930s. And you could say, you know, the, the, the charge flips from negative to positive.
0: Although, po- Although positive in... A complicated way. I mean, you know, when Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life gets released, initially it's regarded as way too bleak. It's not initially warmly received by the public. In fact, maybe, or maybe you would say that Our Town by Wilder and, and Capra, you know, we sort of love them more with each passing decade because they, they have unsettling ideas in them and, and sometimes rather bleak ideas in them. But somehow or other, as, as we age into our relationship with those works, There's something comforting about them.
3: Well, yeah, all of that is true. But it's also true that in the 1930s, there was a very deliberate effort to understand America in the Great Depression when everything seemed to be falling apart. And, you know, the big city, the factories, unemployment, the bread lines, the whole structure that had seemed to be growing so wonderfully during the 1920s began to seem fragile and you know perishable in the 1930s. And so people in that condition were looking for the security and safety of something that could still be identified with America. And that's when the small town became mythologized. It enters into visual culture, Norman Rockwell. It enters into the photography of the Farm Security Administration project. It enters into all kinds of popular culture and film where the small town becomes a place that people begin to think about as a safe place, a place where American values could be held on to, where the meaning of America could be found as against what's happening, the social conflict, the labor conflict, all of the problems of the 1930s that were in effect outside the small town.
0: Right. It seems to me that when we're anxious about things, we get very nostalgic for the small town. So, yeah, you get that in the 30s. I would say you get it in the in the 50s too. You know, you have once again an exaltation of the small town. You get Mayberry RFD and and Lassie and stuff like that, probably at a time when we're kind of worried about the Cold War and nuclear annihilation and stuff like that. There's this notion of comfort. And I think it happens again in the 90s to a certain degree. Then we're nervous about the actual eradication of the small town. Small towns start to have in them CVSs and Boston markets and this kind of DNA code uh, of large national corporations displacing idiosyncratic little businesses. So on television, suddenly you've got Twin Peaks and Northern Exposure and Picket Fences and, you know, you've got all these shows that are about idiosyncratic, quirky small towns at precisely the point when they're being driven out by national corporatization of small towns.
3: That's absolutely true. Uh, You can see this beginning to happen in the 1950s with the creation of Disneyland and uh, some of the TV series that, you know, begin to look at the small town as a kind of refuge, a sort of a place that makes sense. I mean, Rod Serling has a wonderful Twilight Zone episode called Willoughby, where the character who works in a big corporation in New York City is dreaming about this idealized version of a kind of turn of the century small town. And that's the very image that Walt Disney uses in 1950s you know, as a basis for his vision of Main Street Disneyland. That's been the most popular feature of Disneyland in all of its various incarnations, both in the United States and abroad. It has symbolized this idealized community that people have wanted in the face of not only the urbanization, but also globalization. It is an element of nostalgia that's very, very appealing and and has remained so throughout the twentieth and into the twenty first centuries.
0: I mean you know, for all of those examples, practically, I mean, I guess it's not for all of them. I mean, you know, Rockwell, we know from Deborah Solomon's biography now, was kind of a mess in real life. You know, he was living up in a, you know, western Massachusetts town that was, that was a lot like the towns that he painted. But, you know, he was in therapy with Eric Erickson and he was dreaming about a small town as much as he was painting any small town that he could really see.
3: That raises the very interesting question of the duality of this image of the small town mm-hmm. in the late 20th century, when it begins to take on the image of almost a place where the darkness of human character in life comes out. It's almost like going back to the deformities of Sherwood Anderson's image of Winesburg as, as a place where anything bad can happen. And it's partly because the small town can be an incubator of the grotesque human character. But it's also because the darkness that people are trying to depict is more easily depicted in a small town because the small town can serve as a kind of microcosm of the larger society. So you just have a simpler canvas to work on, and you can use it to bring out dimensions of relationships that are conflicted. You can bring out inner conflicts. You can bring out the madness. All of this becomes part of the dark mythology of the small town in late um the late 20th
0: century. Right. So, you have Shirley Jackson, What Goes On in Small Towns. Well, I mean, maybe they just have like a lottery and somebody gets stoned to death. And there's exactly. this there's this notion, I think there's sort of two things that you see a lot in those kinds of evocations. One of them is the notion of the lost past. So, what is, I mean, Shirley Jackson clearly is um, playing a little bit on our anxieties about the way people are probably being demonized during the McCarthy era. That it's all an allegory about something. But it's also, I think, about the distant past, the notion that, well, you know, how many hundred years are we removed from the actual Salem witch trials? And that and you have that kind of almost barbaric set of you know, superstitiously engendered rules where, I mean, people really get hurt under these situations. It seems like one of the things that is being suggested in some of these depictions of small towns in the late 20th century is, oh, well, we could just easily revert to being like that under certain circumstances.
3: There is a sense of human life being very close to the edge. So the small town becomes a kind of laboratory for exploring the psychology of communities and also the inner psychology. But looking at it that way is a little different from saying that small towns actually function that way. Mm-hmm. Because in the late 20th century, actual small towns of the late 20th century are far too open to all kinds of influences to serve as those you know close incubators that they're imagined to be in popular culture. We have these two things or maybe three things. You've got the actual small towns are dying, and you've got the popular version of small town is often, you know, portrayed as a place, you know, an incubation point for evil. But then the third strain is that the small town becomes the model for the new urbanism in the late 20th century and 21st centuries, and you know again the influence of Disneyland here is really pervasive throughout the century. The portrayal of the community as a harmonious place that has traditional values is embodied in the traditional designs of new urbanist uh, architecture, you know, where they use sort of signs that evoke colonial uh, ideals and values and, uh, you know, they construct town centers, where people who live in the community can walk there creating suburbia not as tract housing but rather in the form of communities and that's all modeled you know on the you know the idea of the small town as a space which is livable
0: right so i mean i think it's uh, there's an arc there right i mean if you think about sort of the end of world war 2 this notion of s- soldiers uh, and sealers going back often to the small towns from whence they came all over America. But very quickly, this, the dream changed. The dream changed to be one of, well, maybe you could have something a little bit more than what there is in a small town. We started becoming an increasingly suburbanized nation. That became the dream. The half acre lot, you know, and, and the garage, the attached garage, and all this stuff became kind of the dream. Then there was another, another revolution where, you know, writers like, like Philip uh, uh, Slater and David Reisman start writing about the loneliness of that, that, you know, ultimately you're kind of isolated in that thing. You're watching your television, you're not interacting with your neighbors. And then then you get the new urbanism, right? Then there's this sort of thought, well, geez, maybe things would be better if, you know, instead of shopping malls and shopping centers, you had actual downtowns, you've had spaces that were walkable, you had sidewalks. Um, Look at that little small town we just drove through. They've got a town green that's kind of the center uh, of everything that happens. Why can't we get that back? But it's, it's after we've sort of had, we've kind of dated other ideas, you know, and then we want to go back to our old girlfriend.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right, except that the place where you find the small town being Recreated in suburbia becomes the shopping mall, and the shopping mall was specifically designed by uh, uh, Victor Gruen, uh, the um, Viennese designer who sort of brought it to the U.S. and and his ideal was to create in the interior shopping mall a sense of the community that you would have in the European small town, and that ideal became a sort of surrogate community for suburbia. And it lasted for at least a few decades (laughs) until the the mall began to uh, fall apart as as an idea, as a function. And that's when the new urbanism begins to sort of take over. And the redesign of cities and uh, towns To look like small towns is, you know, one of the ways that cities have actually begun to reinvent themselves, because there is this human need for human scale. And that means buildings that are about two or three stories, shops that you can go into off the street, walking, you know, from one place to another, sitting down, you know, in a restaurant and coffee shop. I mean, all of that, that's what people want as an experience of small-town life that, in some ways, emulates the values of the small town.
0: Well, we have to stop it there, but this has been fascinating, and uh, thank you so much, Miles Orville, uh, professor of English and American Studies at Temple University, the author of several books, including, most relevantly, The Death and Life of Main Street, Small Towns in American Memory, Space and Community. Thanks for spending some time with me today.
3: You're very welcome. It's been fun.
0: Okay. Bye-bye. Okay.
1: My little town, I grew up believing God keeps his eye on us all.